Thank you, Doug. It's so good to pray together to start our, our day. Today we begin in earnest going through the book of Isaiah, and so I have a lot to accomplish in a short amount of time, which means I'll have to keep the introductory chit-chat to a minimum and just get to it. However, I would like to say a few things uh, by way of introduction. The first thing is this, that if you want to get the most out of this series, the, the sum total is so much greater than any of the parts, especially for what we're endeavoring to do through the book of Isaiah. Because we're going to look at the four major parts, each day one part. If you miss a day, you miss one major section in the book. I just want to remind you that my assignment, as I understand it from the Lord, is to, by God's grace and through the active ministry of the Holy Spirit, to unseal the book of Isaiah so that we can read it and understand it. And so I would just encourage you, I know you're on vacation, I know that there are many other things that could draw you, beautiful nature, time to yourself, but I guess I would challenge you at the outset, what is a greater use of time than coming and communing with God and allowing his Holy Spirit to open the book of Isaiah so that you can know him better? Uh, so that's not really a, meant as a plug for me, myself, but really for you, uh, that you can get the most out of uh, what we're trying to do this week. The second thing that I'd like to say is I've read a lot of books on the book of Isaiah, and the one book that I would commend to you and say is the best of all the books is actually a very little book. And I don't commend it to you because it's little, I commend it to you because it's the best, this is called The Holy One of Israel Studies in the Book of Isaiah, and it's by uh, the scholar that has most influenced me, John N. Oswald. So if you want to take a look at it, I'll leave it up here, and you can just look at it. And uh, it's little, but it will take you some time to get through it. Why don't we pause now and pray? Oh yeah, I had a third thing, and then we'll pray. If throughout the week you have a question or a thought, or you just want to talk about the book of Isaiah, I want to talk about the book of Isaiah. And I actually don't have enough time in the morning chapels to talk about it as much as I want to. So do find me, and, and let's talk about it. If you have questions, you want to go deeper, you, you, you have an insight that I have overlooked, please come. I would love to talk to you about this book. Let's pray and invite God to help us this morning. Heavenly Father, if you don't unseal the book, then Isaiah will remain sealed, and we will read it without understanding. I pray this week that you would unseal the book and use me as imperfect a vessel as I am to glorify who you are and to build up your church. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our suffering servant. Amen. Every morning we're going to begin by reviewing the macro structure, the big picture structure of the book. Uh, burn this into your mind. Take a picture of it or write a diagram in your notes because this will help you. This simple diagram will help you. So the very first major section in the book of Isaiah is chapters one through six. That's what we're going to look at today. This is the introduction of the book. The second major section of the book are chapters seven through 39. And if you wanted to capture this with one word, it would be judgment. The third major section of the book runs from chapters 40 to 55. And if you wanted to capture this with one word, it would be salvation or redemption. And then the last major section of the book are chapters 56 through 66. And I can't give you a word for this, but a phrase, walking in grace. So once you've been saved, you've come through the judgment, how do you walk by grace? And there's much in there about our future hope. So in this first major section... Isaiah introduces us to all the major themes of the book, and in so doing, he presents for us 
a stunning dilemma. The dilemma is this. On the one hand, God's people are wicked. They're rebellious. They're idol worshipers. They're self-indulgent. They are corrupt. The leadership has failed. They're religiously hypocritical. It's, it's a dismal portrait of Israel. On the other hand, in these opening chapters, God promises to make his people holy and pure so that they can be a light to the nations. He's going to make them fit so that they can live in the very presence of God, the unmediated presence of God, where they will behold the fullness of his glory in a perfect universe. So the theological question at the outset of the book is how do we get from here to there? How does this people become that people? How do we go from our present reality to God's promised reality? Now, we could say, well, that's just about Israel. Israel struggled. Israel wasn't what Israel ought to have been. But is this not the question that is before each one of us today? On the one hand, the Bible says we are to be holy and perfect and pure and blameless and righteous, that we will be made fit to live in the very presence of God unmediated. And on the other hand, don't we still struggle with sin? So this book at the very beginning is extremely applicable to us as individuals. I think the better fit, though, is not about us individually, but us as the church. I don't want to get into this debate, has the church replaced Israel? And I'm not going to get into that debate. However, as we go through the book, the best equivalent between God's message to Israel through Isaiah is not to apply that to Canada, or to the United States, or even to present-day Israel, but to say there's a message in this for the church. And so, on the one hand, the church is the light of the world. We're We're the great hope in Christ, important. But the church in Christ is the hope of the world. So where is this church? I'd love to be a part of that church. And I don't know about you, but I haven't found that church. Because the church is filled with us. How is God going to take us from our present reality to his promised reality? Well, the book of Isaiah is going to help us to answer that question. Let's take a look at the structure of chapters one through six. Uh, Before I do a word about structure, you're going to say, well, I don't really care about all the structure. That's nice that you're going to say this section and that section and then that section. Uh, But I truly believe that whether you're studying any book of the Bible, but especially when you get into the prophets and especially when you get into the book of Isaiah, the meaning of the book is in the structure. If you, if you don't have eyes to see the structure, you will not understand the book. And if you don't understand the book, you will not be able to derive any of the meaning. And if you can't derive any of the meaning, you can't apply it to your life. You can't see the glory that God wants us to see about who he is. And so I, this week, I want to help you to see where the seams in the book are. So let's take a look at this structure. Throughout the week, I'll be comparing this structure to a mountain range. Uh, that if you can picture the book of Isaiah not as a linear, we're going from, from A to B to C, but if you can picture that as we're going through the book of Isaiah, we're going over peaks and valleys, and, and some of the peaks are higher than other peaks, then you'll have a, a good metaphor for understanding the structure of the book. Well, what is the beginning of this mountain range in the first six chapters? Broadly speaking, we can divide the first six chapters into two main sections, uh, chapters one through five and chapter six. You see in chapter six uh, a peak, 
Chapter six is the call of the prophet Isaiah. And many scholars have asked, well, why is the prophet called after six chapters or after five chapters in the sixth chapter? Usually the call of the prophet comes at the beginning of the book. Well, that's because we have the foothills of this mountain range in the first five chapters. And in these foothills, we have to understand what it is that the prophet Isaiah has been called to prophesy. What is his assignment? And then, and this is where we're going to end today, we're going to see how the, the call of the prophet itself resolves the tension that I've presented to you, the dilemma. How are we going to get from here to there? How are we going to, is this people going to become that people? How is our present reality going to be transformed into our promised reality? Chapters one through five can be further divided uh, with two additional peaks. So you have in these introductory chapters an opening and a closing, so chapter one and chapter five. And then right inside chapters one and five, you have these two peaks. These two peaks, which are just 10 verses, about 7% of the opening five chapters, is where we get the hope. That's where Isaiah breaks through the present reality and says, but there is a promised reality coming. And so we ascend very, very, very quickly without any transition to these beautiful uh, pictures on the summit of these two little narrow peaks in the foothills of the book of Isaiah. But the rest is very, very dark, very difficult. For the most of chapters one through five, Isaiah paints a picture of Israel's present reality. And therefore, he begins to talk about the coming judgment that is necessary because they've broken covenant with God. I want to go through the low part of these five chapters and then end with the promises of hope. I believe that even though the bulk of the material is dark, depressing, and difficult, that actually the theological emphasis in these first six chapters is one of hope. And in fact, it's, it's the small amount of hope that is given that accentuates it. It's like the, these, these two peaks of hope become like exclamation points. Yeah, this is true. This is the reality. Yes, judgment is coming. But this is going to happen. And you're going to be like this. So although, if this was a pie graph, most of it, some 93% of it is dark and difficult, uh, the emphasis is squarely on hope. Because the last word of God through the prophet is never despair and judgment. The last word of the prophet is always, but I'm going to do something that you could not even conceive of for your good and for my glory. But let's start in the dark and difficult part of these opening chapters. Last night, Steve ended with uh, two metaphors for God, that God is both the judge and the prosecuting attorney. And that's exactly where we start in Isaiah 1. Now, for us, we don't really have eyes to see. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 1. We don't really have eyes to see, but uh, if you heard, I don't know if I could do it, but uh, this sound, dun-dun. Not Jaws. Law and Order. You know from two notes that were very poorly imitated through this microphone. Law and order. You know that what's about to happen, you're going to get through in one hour, you're going to get through one court case. Well, if you're a Hebrew reader and you're reading through this right at the beginning, you're like, oh, this is a court case. The way the book of Isaiah begins is God calls his people to court. At the very beginning, he calls his witnesses, heaven and earth. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. And that rings in our ears, in our memory, because the witnesses of the covenant were heaven and earth, if you go back into the Torah. So heaven and earth were there when God made a covenant with his people. Heaven and earth have been there. They've witnessed Israel 
breaking covenant, trampling the courts. And so God calls his witnesses, heaven and earth. And then he levels a general, general accusation against his people. And I could summarize it this way. You have rebelled against me. You've broken the covenant that you swore not to break. And then God summons the witness. And he calls his witness by name, but not Israel, not Judah. Come forth, Sodom, Sit up in the witness or in the, uh, in, the, in the box, Gomorrah. What's God saying at the very outset? My people have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. He calls the defendant Sodom and Gomorrah. By the time you get down just a little ways into verse 21 and 23, you get the verdict, guilty, as charged. And then the sentence comes in verses 24 and 25, 30 and 31. We're going over this very quickly because this is not the point of this morning. But I'm just trying to help you to see that this is a court case. And the sentence is purification. And here we get a small glimmer of hope. I didn't put it into a big peak because uh, really the emphasis is on burning. I'm going to burn away the liar and the dross. In the middle section, so right after God calls his people to court, there's this picture of hope, which we'll get to at the end. But then in chapter 2, 5 through 4, 1, we have five vignettes where God accuses his people. And in those five vignettes, God very clearly rejects his people. In verses 5 through 22 of chapter 2, we are told that God will bring his people low. He's going to chop them down to the ground. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, we get a woe oracle against the leadership of God's people. In chapter 3, verses 16 to 26, we get this metaphor where God's people are called the daughters of Zion. And God says, I'm going to humiliate you and strip you and lead you away and take away all your finery. Then we have this another peak, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And then we're back down into chapter 5, into these uh, low parts, and we get this song of a vineyard. Let me sing you a song of my beloved in his vineyard. And we're thinking, oh, this is going to be very good. And we're going to take a closer look at that. God basically says, I'm going to destroy my vineyard. And then this section ends with a series of woe oracles in chapter 5, verses 8 through 30. I want to give you just a taste of the tone I want to warn you, this is difficult. What I'm about to read to you might say, this is not the God I know. This is not the God I want to hear about. But this is the God who is. This is God as he has revealed himself. This is God as he wants to be known. This is God as he spoke to his people, Israel. This is God speaking to his people, The church. Let's take a look at chapter 3, verses 16 to 26. This is the central vignette in that middle section, 2 5 through 4 1. Or, sorry, this is the, the final vignette. Isaiah 3.16, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantingly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Just pause there. Who are these daughters of Zion? 
This is not about the women living in Jerusalem. This is about the nation, the people. And we know that because if you go down to verse 26, her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. That's Jerusalem. So the daughters of Zion are the inhabitants of Jerusalem and more broadly, the people of Judah and more broadly still, the people of Israel. The daughters of Zion have exalted themselves. They're haughty, they're arrogant. They walk with outstretched necks. They want to be noticed for their beauty. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Why do you think the Lord piles up all of that? These people care more about their comfort than the glory of God. They care more about their beauty, their self-exaltation. These are all metaphors for the things, the worldliness that that the, the people of Israel have accumulated to themselves, trying to build themselves up in their own day. They don't care about righteousness. They don't care about justice. They don't care about the oppressed. They don't care about the marginalized. They care about themselves. They want to live in luxury. They want all the finest things that the world has to offer. They want to worship themselves and their own beauty instead of the God who made them and called them into covenant. So God's going to take it all away. All, All these things that are distracting his people from worshiping him, he's going to take it away. And because of their arrogance, he's going to humble them. He's going to lay bare their secret parts. Would God do such a thing? Now, there's an anatomical metaphor there. But really what the Lord is talking about is those things that people do in secret that nobody sees but God. It's all going to be uncovered. And then, oh, the shame. We look good until we're laid bare. And everything that has distracted us has been taken away. Verse 24, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. The smell of perfume replaced by the stench of who we really are. Instead of a belt for high fashion, a rope to lead us into bondage. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. This is hard. You ready for another one? There's five. I'm not going to give you all five. But I do want to give you one more. This is the song of the vineyard because this comes up again later in the book. Chapter five, verses one through seven. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Sounds good. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. 
but it yielded wild grapes, sour grapes. The number one crop in Judah was grapes, a vineyard. So God is speaking to the people where they are. You could imagine a synagogue filled with with vineyard farmers. And so, oh, great, you're going to talk to us about, about our craft, about our, our work in the, in the earth. And, and he says, I want to tell you this beautiful song and how hard my beloved worked for his vineyard. And oh, yeah, that's a lot of hard work because it's many years before you get a good crop. But when that year came and he still just had wild, sour grapes, what would you do with that vineyard? And all these farmers would say, you burn it to the ground and you find another piece of ground and you start over. That's the question that the Lord through Isaiah asks these farmers. Verse 3. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. The hedge would protect it from the wild animals. I'm going to let the wild animals in. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. I'm not going to care for it. It's not going to receive my grace, my love, my work. And briars and thorns shall grow up in it. That immediately makes us think of what? Genesis 3. I've worked so hard to take my people from Genesis 3. But here we are back at Genesis 3. I'll command the clouds and they will rain no rain upon it. Now in case these farmers didn't know what Isaiah was talking about, verse 7 makes it clear. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Then Jesus picks up on this, right, in some of his parables. And then in John 15, he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. God will replant his vineyard, and he does it through Jesus Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself because it's uncomfortable, right, to be in this place. But until we see the context for these summits of hope, these little glimmers of the promised reality to come, we cannot truly appreciate them. Let's read you three more verses because this becomes explicit. God has been speaking in picture form. Now in verses 13 to 15, he's very clear. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. I'm going to take my people into exile, which was the climactic curse in Deuteronomy 28. If you break covenant with me, all these curses, and climactically, I will take you out of the land. That's what it's saying here. I'm going to take you into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men will go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite, opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled. Each one is brought low. The eyes of the haughty are brought low. Remember on Sunday night, we talked about what it means to be meek. If you exalt yourself, God will bring you low. Look at verse 16. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. One of the ways that God has promised to exalt himself is to judge and to condemn sin and sinners. That's one way that God highly exalts himself. That's one way where God shows, there is none like me. That's where he says, look at me, look at my 
perfect holiness and righteousness. I am a God of justice, and I will not put up with your sin forever. That's what it says here. This is so hard to receive. And in the church, are we accustomed to hearing this? These are difficult vignettes and portraits of God to accept. God takes his people to court and finds them guilty, calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. God rejects his people in the most graphic ways imaginable. God lays waste his vineyard. Yes. But not the church. Not everyone in the church is truly part of the church. So yes, there's a day of reckoning. Judgment begins in the household of God. Peter said it. So if Jesus Christ was to come to your church on Sunday, what would be the result? That's it for the dark backdrop. Against this backdrop, though, there is wonderful hope and promise. And I do believe that that's where the accent in these opening chapters must be. So let's take a look at them. There are two peaks of glorious promise that stand in stark contrast to the surrounding material. The first one comes in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's just open there. Now, as we read this, I want you to remember what we've already spoken of. And I want you also to notice that Isaiah doesn't transition us into this hope, and he doesn't transition us out of this hope. It's intentionally jarring. Because the only way that we can go from here to there, from present reality to promised reality, is for God to do something. He has to pick us up and take us out of the valley and put us on the mountaintop. I'm going to read this, and then I'll just have a couple of things to say about it. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. I can't even help myself. I'll pause there. This is the second introduction to the book, and I believe that's because the first introduction in 1.1 introduces all the dark despair, the present reality, and now we have a second introduction. So this is going to be a book of two messages, two themes, uh, present re- uh, reality, which is despair, and, and promised future, which is hope, and throughout the book, these two things collide and, and interweave with one another and they crash together, but they don't resolve. And, and through the ages, they, they're continually to crash against one another and they don't resolve themselves until we get to the cross. And then the present reality and the promised future uh, come together, the love and the justice of God come together at Golgotha, the place of the skull where God himself in human form make sense of these totally contradictory ideas. But even here, 700 years before that, God says, I I want you to write two books, Isaiah, and we're going to weave them together. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is good. This is what we want to hear. This is where we're going. It's not where we are. 
But this is what God has promised to us. And he starts by saying, look, this is for the latter days. Well, when are the latter days? Well, they're latter. They're later. Don't try to figure it out. I don't think we've yet come here. Because this is not yet fully realized. There's some sort of down payment of this, that, that we are already experiencing some of this in the church, but not all of it. Not all of it. First thing that we see here is that Jerusalem will be exalted. The mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Zion. Throughout the book, we'll hear about Zion, Mount Zion. That, that's the mountain that Jerusalem is built upon. And more specifically, that's the mountain where the temple was built on top of Zion. And what we're told here is that mountain, where the temple of God is, where the city of God is, that mountain is going to be exalted as the highest hill. Remember, I don't know if you can remember back or if you're here on Sunday, if you, if you get down into verses six and following, it's all about everyone else and everything else being brought low. And here, the mountain of the Lord is exalted high. And then the meek, not just from Israel, not just from Judah, but from all the nations shall flow to it. So everyone who has made themselves low from every nation, and, and here we don't resolve, how is, this, how is the covenant going to enfranchise all of the nations? It doesn't answer it here, but the book of Isaiah will open the door to answering that question. But the meek from every nation will flow and ascend Mount Zion. Why? Because we want to know Israel's God. Somehow, Israel is going to succeed in being a light to the nations. Somehow, all these pagans from all different regions of the world, worshiping all kinds of demons and false gods and idols, will say, enough with this false worship, these false gods. The God of Israel is the God of the universe. And don't we see that already beginning in the church? We see that happening. And that's amazing because uh, Israel's just a small little insignificant place. And all the mighty nations of the world will stream to that place to worship the God of this small, rejected people. And then finally, the promise is for world peace. As the meek of all the nations flow to Mount Zion and they ascend up onto the mountaintop to meet with Israel's God, they'll say, I don't need my guns anymore. I don't need my battle tanks anymore or my fighter jets. I don't need nuclear weapons anymore. I don't need any more dirty bombs. I don't need cyber warfare anymore because... Israel's God is the God of everyone, and I don't need to fight anymore. I'm going to link arms, brother to brother, sister to sister, and I don't care if, if this one is from Saudi Arabia or China or Ireland or Argentina or Israel. There's one God, and he alone is to be exalted. And God says, in that day, you're going to stop fighting over the creation, and you're going to worship the creator. It's a wonderful promise. It should be the mission of the church. World peace, is that too small a mission for us? This is a beautiful picture. And God says at the very beginning of his book, this is what I'm going to do. Second mountain peak, just flip over to chapter four. Verse 2, in that day, what day? The latter day. When's that? Not yet. <laughs> it's coming. It's already broken into history through Jesus Christ, but the fullness of it is still yet to come. Already, not yet. So we should see glimmers of this fulfilled, but not fully fulfilled. In that day, 
the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Oh, this is wonderful. Oh, when is this day come, Lord Jesus? Bring the fullness of this day. Well, we know some things from this passage. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. What is this branch of the Lord? There's a lot of debate about this. This might mean that the universe itself will be beautiful and glorious because we see there the second line that the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And this stands in contrast to the briars and thorns. So, so there's a sense in which the whole universe is going to be fruitful. There's not going to be any more hurricanes or thunderstorms or earthquakes. There's no, going to be no more wilderness and desert. It's just going to, everything's going to be teeming with life and fruitfulness. But throughout the prophets, the branch becomes this code word for the Messiah. In that day, all of this is going to be brought about because there's going to be a Messiah in Israel. There's going to be that promised king. He's going to be beautiful. And he's going to be glorious. And when we gaze upon his beauty and his glory, every other petty difference will fade away. And then we're told that those who are left in Zion, throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, and I would argue that this is currently true in the church, there's only ever a remnant of true believers among God's people. It's true in Israel, it's true in the church. So those who are left, after judgment has come, and everyone is seen for who they really are, the meek. They are the ones who are left. The meek who have flowed to Zion, ascended the hill to worship God, they'll be holy. Everything that we read about in chapter 1 and 2, 5 through 4, 1 and chapter 5, that's all gone. No more sin. No more injustice. We're going to be holy. How? Well, God's going to wash it away. He's going to wash away all of the filth of the daughters of Zion. We read about the daughters of Zion. All, all of that's washed away. How? Well, he laid bare their secret parts. He took away all their finery and accessories. He led them out into captivity. He washed them and then bought them back. It's going to be done by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Paul mentions this, right, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3. If you have Christ, you'll make it into the new heavens and new earth. But as through fire, God's going to test each one of us. And in that final judgment, he's going to put our life into the fires of judgment. And all the sin will be burned away. And all of the things that were just pure banality and, and uselessness will be burned away. And all that will be left is that what we did to glorify him. And the foundation, which is Christ. So build your lives for a judgment of fire. It's, 
We shouldn't fear the fire. We should long for it. I want my sin to be burned away. I want all the meaningless, trivial pursuits of my life to be washed away, burned away as chaff. I want God to throw my life up into the air and for all the meaningless stupidity and sinful ugliness to just blow away. And then I want the weight of what God has done in my life by grace to fall. And I want him to gather me together and say, oh, child, come in and rest a while. So we shouldn't fear the fire, but make no mistake, the only way to pure holiness is through fire. And then we have this beautiful vision of dwelling with God. The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, that is, over the whole creation, really, a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. This is clearly tabernacle imagery. And what God is saying is, I'm going to create the universe, uh, recreate the universe as one giant tabernacle where the glory of God manifests fully without mediation. And because I have made you holy with the spirit of burning and of fire, you'll behold me and you will live with me forever. These are two very different pictures, aren't they? The present reality and the promised reality. How are we going to get from here to there? Well, that's what the book of Isaiah is all about. So buckle up and stay tuned. How is God going to do it? But he gives us a hint in chapter six, and I don't really have time to get into it. But let me just give you the information you need to read it for yourself. In chapter six, Isaiah becomes a microcosm of the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel is a microcosm of the nations. So what is true for Isaiah is true for Israel, and what is true for Israel is true for the nations. So Isaiah is caught up in a vision, into a a vision of the glory of God. And he he finally, for the first time, he was a pious man, but for the first time, he sees God for who he really is. And as he catches a vision of this high and exalted God, he falls down on his face and he says, whoa, here's me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Among, I'm adding this part, nations filled with people of unclean lips. See how it goes together. So so Isaiah gets a vision for who God is and a vision for who he is. That's step one of how God is going to take us from our present reality to our promised reality. We have to know who God is. We have to read chapters one and two through four and five. If we don't know who God is, we will not be counted among the righteous because we will not fall down before him and we will not say, woe is me. And Isaiah said, I, I'm undone. I'm, I'm going to be destroyed. I'm going to blow apart. I'm not fit to be in the presence of God. And then one of the angels called a, a burning one comes and he takes a coal from the altar and he touches it against the lips of Isaiah. He says, never mind all that. I've atoned for your sin Now, I need someone to go. I have a message for my people. Who will I send? And Isaiah says, me? God says, okay, here's your mission. I want you to go and close their ears and shut their eyes. I want you to give them a picture of who I am so that they will not know who I am because they're going to reject you. Isaiah says, okay, I can do that. But for how long? Like 10 years, right? And then there's going to be a great revival? 
Then everyone's gonna know that I'm a prophet of, of the high and exalted God and people are going to love me and they're gonna stream design. We're gonna wrap this up in my lifetime. And God says, no. I want you to continue to blind their eyes and close their ears until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses are without people. Until my promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, this good land is a desolate wasteland. Then I'm going to remove my people far away and I want you to keep preaching. And though there's a remnant left, a tenth, a tithe, I'm going to burn it again. Because even this remnant doesn't really know who I am. How, how much are you going to whittle down your people, God? I'm going to burn it until it's a stump, and then when it's a stump, I'm going to burn it again. How long until I have a remnant of one. And he is the holy seed. And he's going to come from the stump that I burned over and over again. And that's how I'm going to bring my people from their present reality to this promised reality. How are we going to get from here to there? Hope, I'm going to quote John Oswald to, to close our time. Hope is through judgment, not around it. Can you embrace that? Hope is through judgment, not around it. For so many of us, uh, our hope is in, well, I hope I can get around judgment. That's the hope of the world, right? Scoffers, there's no judgment. Has that seeped into the church? No judgment. Here's the good news for us. That's what the cross is all about. How do you go through God's refining judgment and stand up on the other side. If God was to test my life with fire, I said I, I'm looking forward to it, that's only because of God's grace, because if he was to take my life and put it in the furnace of his judgment, I'm just a heap of ash. So how do I get through that fire? I put myself in the holy seed. I have to be in Christ. And he carries me through the fire of judgment on the cross. And he stands up on the third day. And I've read 1 Corinthians 15. I'll stand up with him. I hope you'll give yourself to this book this week. We have much to explore.